G'day, mate. Porty here. So one thing that happens when a lot of people get into recovery or get religion, they really start looking down on gossip. And gossip is something that can absolutely save your life. I, I was just out for a walkabout, and I happened to tune into this article from Wired by some bloke talking about how rea- reality TV saved his life. But how did reality TV save his life? It connected him to people he became intrigued by and cared about. We only gossip about people who are significant to us. So the people who come by Morning Minion at synagogue asking for money, pretty much nobody gossips about them, except to say, you know, warn you about some dangerous bloke, and maybe he's banned from the shore. But other than that, you don't, you don't gossip about people who are way below you. So if you're interested in the leaders of Black Lives Matter or Antifa or Nick Fuentes or Richard Spencer or Ethan Ralph or this streamer or that e-personality or that reality star or that, that actor, it means that you care about people. And ideally, you should primarily be invested in your family and extended family and friends and your your immediate community. But you're not really a part of your community until people gossip about you, right? You're not really a member of a shul, not member of a community until people are gossiping about you. So that's that's the normal path to to human connection. And so to completely abstain from gossip is incredibly self-destructive. We need to gossip for information. And for connection, right? It's a great way to connect. Now, that doesn't mean that you disclose everything, all right? So when people tell me something on the QT, I keep it keep it in the vault. But it's normal, natural, healthy to, you know, wonder about the dynamics of a workplace or, the, you know, wonder about what's going on in your synagogue or your church or your, your bowling league or your book club or your gym, all right? If you have some gossip going, right, in your gym, Right, that, that means that you're connected to people in your gym. If you have gossip going about people that you go to church with, it means that you're connected to people in your church community. If you gossip about people you go to synagogue with, all right, that means that you're connected to people in your synagogue community. Okay, I forgot to forgot to send out invites all right, for the hordes of people who want to come on the stream. So here is interview once again with Renee DeResta, Online Ecosystems Disinformation Censorship Debates. Model it in that moment while somebody tries to figure out what's going on and then inform. I thought this is fantastic. This is counter speech. This is contextualization, right? You're telling the audience, here's a disputed thing. It's staying up. You can see it. We're not taking it down. But here are like other facts you might want to consider. So I started advocating much more for uh, inform, particularly as movement started in 2020, really sort of leaning into uh, inform is, is really your best bet here. But then now it's all called censorship. You know? <laughs> so now it's, uh, you know, I mean, everything, everything is censorship. It's a very, it's a very frustrating conversation, I think, particularly as somebody who has really, really tried to drill down on the answer to the question, like, what is the best possible design in a system with no neutral, right? What, and, I, and I really have tried to engage, particularly with critics, particularly with, you know, friends on opposite sides of this, with the question, what do you want? Right? Because you have to be able to answer that question. What is the values that you want to encode into the system, into this platform design, into this ranking or curation system that you think is the correct thing to do? Because people who just bitch about censorship all day long, who just say that like a label is censorship, they have no positive vision for you know, how you do handle things like what happens when somebody's putting out content telling you that you should drink bleach, right? Which is a thing that really happens. I'm sure you've seen some of these communities like the like MMS autism, quote unquote, cure nonsense, right? What okay, so I would not want to be part of a community that uh, has people putting out messages that uh, it's a good thing to drink bleach. So those kind of real concrete harms, I'm all for banning. I'm ba- for banning people who dox. I'm for banning people who make violent threats, right? I, I don't want any of that in, in my community. I don't want people promoting illegal behavior, but I want a free exchange of ideas. I want a free exchange of ideas about voting integrity, vaccines, COVID, lockdowns. Uh, 
I, I want a free exchange of ideas, but I don't want those you know, most dramatic forms of you know, antisocial behavior. What happens when somebody's putting that content out there? Does the platform have a responsibility? If so, what is it? If so, what is the design feature or algorithm, like algorithmic manifestation of that value system, of that, of that, you know, that, that response to that kind of user-created content? So this is, I think, I'll, I'll stop with my, <laughs> my like, soapbox rant up here. But really, I think that is the question. What do you want has to be the question uh, that, that we ask when people are positioning themselves as defenders of free speech, because it's not as simple as that anymore. No, no. Well, you, you're ranting to the choir there, so I enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> a, a, another thing very much related to this that you, that you talked about recently is, is the, the, motiv- and it's the motivations of bad actors, I guess. Because in, within, say, those Facebook moms groups, you, you have people that have discovered that they can gain a lot of clout, you know, m- maybe make money by uh, provoking and aggravating the, the very normal human fears and anxieties that are floating around amongst those groups. And we see it amongst the audience of our gurus as well, where people have a natural proclivity, I suppose, towards conspiratorial paranoias and neuroses. And there are people out there who, who are not you know, agents for Russia or some other, they don't necessarily have a coherent agenda, but they've certainly learned that you can get clout, you can become popular and perhaps make money by provoking those fears through a whole spectrum of stuff. I, I guess you call it misinformation, but it can just be very highly tortured or twisted information as well. So, you know, how do we, you know, what, how do you think about these actors and, and those dynamics within these social media ecosystems? That became really um, a central focus of the work that we did during COVID, right? Which, which was exactly, so it was in recognition of the fact that, as you know, many of the most influential players in the COVID conversation were people who already had large audiences, but more importantly, audiences that trusted, that, that trusted them, right? And so wellness influencers, for example, were a, a you know, big piece of shaping conversations around vaccines. There were the diehard, you know, vaccines cause autism kind of anti-vaccine people. That was a whole, you know, that's holding all of that aside. There is this phenomenon that you describe, which is often, you know, either sometimes well-meaning people, sometimes people who are profiting, sometimes people who want clout, you know, who are in there expressing their opinion, expressing their point of view. Okay, so I'm off for letting people express their point of view, but uh, an interesting article here in, in Wired, how reality TV saved my life. Yeah, becoming invested in people, right? caring about people, loving people. It's a great way to turn your life around. So he went to a Bravo convention. convention grounds. And before the more than 140 Bravo celebrities begin sweet-talking fans for the next nine hours, an NBC Universal rep semi-jokingly tells me that Bravo fandom is like a cult. I get a taste of that devotion when I remark to a woman from California that the most recent season of The Real Housewives of Atlanta is a far cry from the show's pioneering early days. She pauses for a beat, sizes me up. It's still everything, she says. This is no place for non-believers. Loyalty is a requirement in the kingdom of Bravo. But not only that. As one development exec behind Love is Blind puts it to me, fans want to be involved themselves. Sure enough, during a panel with Potomac's Ashley Darby, a young man approaches the mic and confesses, though it comes off more like a brag, that he has had sex with her ex-husband. Darby's divorce was a major plot point last season. The audience lets out a collective gasp. My initial reaction? Oh, shit. Dissolves in an instant because I can't escape the fact that I secretly love that this is happening. Which is maybe the point. Which is maybe exactly the point. This is what makes reality... Te- right, so for a lot of people who are depressed, running low on energy, it's, it's a absolutely great thing to to get something that you care about into your life. So speaking of caring, we've got uh, Duvid back on the show. Duvid, how are you? Brother Sam. So uh, what's what's new with you? I don't think I've spoken to you for a couple of weeks. Um, 
nothing much. I just got to Shavuos tomorrow night. You've been uh, keeping busy working, studying. And have you done any streaming? I'm still doing my regular streaming, although uh, you know my networking is uh, declined. So I, I was actively trying to network more, and uh, and I stopped. And you know, I'm still doing streaming. My numbers are about the same. And what have you been talking about? Mostly science, consciousness, uh, spirituality, just topics that interest me. And, uh, you know, my chat is diminished. Although my numbers are about the same, maybe picking up. So, like, people are definitely watching my videos, although you're not much interaction. There was a Haknasa Safer Tour in a new, uh, new community. I live streamed that out uh you know like chabad ventured into a new area of the suburbs where there's not much judaism towards where michael lives and uh someone donated a safer torah and uh you know they finished it so i went out to that event and uh i had elliot on actually last night you know he stepped up his book selling so we were talking about uh selling books And uh, how's uh, how's your protege Michael? How's he coming along? Um, I'm not sure he's been busy. So we we streamed each, we stream we were streaming weekly for for three weeks, and then the last two weeks he had to cancel. I guess uh, you know he lives a decent way for like 45 minutes from me, um, and so I, I guess he's just busy. Uh, although I did put him to work, he helped out by my parents' house. My parents paid him a little bit, just uh, doing some moving, a bunch of boxes. So my my dad has this library that uh, like he expanded uh, an area of the house and set up like uh, twenty new bookshelves. Uh, so uh, he, we've had a lot of books, you know, like boxed up in various parts of the houses. And the construction finally finished, and now we got like 20 new bookshelves. And so uh, my parents paid Michael to uh, help move some books uh, around the house. So he was out at my parents' house twice this week, and my parents are about halfway between where uh, me and me and him live. Okay, great. So my my subject topic for tonight was inspired by a story I saw in Wired magazine. This guy talked about how reality TV saved his life because he was really depressed. All his relationships had fallen through. And what got him excited and, and connected again was watching reality TV because he could really uh, resonate with the people there. And we have a form of reality TV going on with you know our streaming world. And uh, I'm just making the point that you only gossip about people that you have some investment in. So people that you don't care about at all, you don't you don't waste your breath uh, gossiping about. But it's kind of wired into us that we need to to gossip for connection and we need to gossip for information. And you can get you know wired into a community through gossip. Also, you can destroy a community and destroy yourself through gossip. So like everything else, it's very much a two-edged sword. Uh, there are no solutions in life. There there are only trade-offs. But I'm sure you've had times in your life where you've engaged in more gossip and 
times in your life when you've engaged in less gossip. So what role has uh, gossip played in your life, David? Generally, I've avoided it. Um, you know, certainly Jewish circles, it's much more different because you know, like we're always getting together and we always see people, we know people like, like uh, you know, the larger American impersonal goyish world is pretty impersonal. So I could see gossip having more valuable, um, you know, so like now in the last few years where I've kind of sank into isolation, uh, like I might stream, try to find people who just want to talk about topics, but uh, like I don't really have any personal relationships with anybody, um, you know, so I could see like trying to make friends or get into some sort of circle, break grounds, uh, gossip could be valuable. So I don't know if you want to split it up you know, to dissect the issue, you know, Orthodox Judaism, where gossip is frowned upon and their rules, but uh, the uniqueness of Orthodox culture, where you have a strong community and like everybody's always in each other's face, uh, where gossip might be different than the larger impersonal world where it's hard to, uh, you know, break the barrier and meet people and gossip could kind of like, uh, you know, break that barrier where you have some sort of personal information about people. Yeah, either one, but let's just start with you. You just said something that would you know, strike most people as very sad. You, you talked about you don't feel connected to anyone. So uh, gossip, isn't gossip a, a way to to start forming connections? I mean, you can also engage in gossip that, that destroys connections, but uh, it's kind of an austere life to not be connected to people, is it not? It depends what you mean connected. You mean like emotionally connected. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, I've known Michael two months now and, and we spoke largely just the facts. And I like the relation because when we speak, we largely just speak purely about Judaism. So uh, I have not really asked him that many or even any personal questions about himself. Like, you know, his history, who his friends are, um, you know, kind of like need to know basis. And you know, for having like a, a purposeful, you know, progress-driven life, it could be better to keep people at an arm's distance and uh, not have that much information about them. So I'm be like sad, like, oh, isn't it lonely? You don't have like deep emotional connections to people, uh, but you could still have professional relations with people. You could still have uh, meaningful relations with people and uh, you'll be a just the facts type person and uh, mind your own business type person. So, I mean, generally that's my strategy. And, uh, you know, however I suffer loneliness, uh, you know, due to that, so it has advantages and disadvantages, advantages that, uh, you know, basically I just sit and read and study and keep on point and focus and only have relations that have some sort of practical mutual benefit and, uh, you know, avoid the drama. And, uh, you know, the downside is, uh, isolation and loneliness right so you you just you said a lot there you talked about uh, avoiding gossip uh, and having a purpose-driven life but i i don't understand a purpose-driven life that's not connected to other people i mean when i read a book a, a great deal of what gives me the the strength and the enthusiasm to read the book is because i then want to talk about it with people like concrete people people i see face to face like if i didn't have people who I was, you know, emotional about, 
I, it would be much, it would be 10, 20, 50, 100 times harder for me to get emotional about a book, right? Books have meaning to me because I can talk about them with people. Uh, you know, beautiful scenery has meaning to me because I can talk about it with people. Uh, you know, making money is meaningful to me because it enables me to see more people. So I just can't relate to a purpose-driven life where the purpose isn't primarily people building relations with with people developing connections with people i mean that's that's the the fuel for for everything like i've been getting up around 4am a lot of mornings and uh, you know doing some work on, on my blog and then you know going out making money and then coming home and doing some live streaming and then you know lifting weights and uh, doing some exercise and so i i get to have you know a ton of passion because I'm connected with people who I who I care about and, and I see if I didn't see people that I really cared about on, on a daily basis I, and I've had that circumstance way too often in my life then I just feel absolutely drained in energy so perhaps you can talk to me about how how does one have a purpose-driven life if people aren't the the purpose I, I had to type it in to see who the quote came from. And I was actually surprised that it's Eleanor Roosevelt, but the you know, great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, small minds discuss people. And gossip is largely related to people, maybe somewhat related to events you know, occurring among people. So I like ideas. We've been talking for a few years now, almost exclusively about ideas. Very rarely do we discuss people. Very rarely, you know, almost never do I you know, ask you about uh, personal things, except in relationship to ideas or topics. I might, you know, ask you like personal questions about uh, your belief system you know, in relation because we talk about those kind of ideas. But uh, you know, a few years now, I've, I like I've never really delved that much into ask you that many personal questions, and and we're still talking. Um, yeah, you know, I have friends or associates, and you know, we talk. We you know, concerned, how's your health, how's your business? Um, and it you know, relates back to what we were talking last time about taking instruction. So, uh, you know, just practical, like, oh, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm talking with Luke. So, you know, let's take instruction. So either you know something and you'll give me instruction or I know something, I'll give you instruction um, as opposed to, you know, let's talk about mutual people and, uh, Gossip. So I assume you've heard the Eleanor Roosevelt uh, quote, and uh, I don't know if you have a reaction to that. Yeah, yeah, I've heard it, and I, I think it's completely wrong. I think anyone who doesn't care about people is just um, is just sadly sadly lacking in in humanity. And if you care about people, then you're going to be interested in talking about people. You can't care about something and, and not want to talk about it. So I, I think she's c completely wrong. That what what she's describing is you know some conception of, of human beings who just are not interested very much in other human beings, which which strikes me as sad. Yeah, I doubt it because I mean, if you say like care, if you're talking like chesed, um, you say like, well, you know, would you help a person in need? Would you be charitable? Or even the level of relationship to me, like, well, what is gossip? Gossip is largely useless information. So I mean, that's generally 
they're kind of like, well, you you want to know what I think? It's like, no, I don't want to know what you think. Like, why the hell would I know want to know what you think? You know, what you think is not that valuable. And so, uh, you know, if you if you're thinking like you know, on gossiping, especially like, do I want to know what you think about uh, you know you in general, like anybody, uh, you know, even my close friends or or family members, uh, that if you you waste a bunch of time where people are expressing how they think and feel about various topics and you say like well it's meaningful to our relationship because i care about you i'm willing to listen to how you think and feel about a bunch of topics where how you think or feel really makes no difference and uh, you know so if it means care like i care enough about you to inform you that how you think or feel about these things doesn't really matter it's not going to benefit your life and uh, you know for me to uh, even pretend that i care how you think or feel about these topics uh does not necessarily uh you know mean that i care about you more it's just that it's just a sign of bad character you're saying i care about you more because you know like uh i believe in character refinement i believe that we could become better people and then we have to take the hard reality that it doesn't really matter how we think or feel about a bunch of issues that's why it's called gossip hmm. so if you if you have a neighbor who is you know unhappy because i don't know you you walk around naked in your house and you know he has to look at it or you're not you know cleaning your yard or you have unsavory people coming over or you're playing music too loud or you you know have unsightly vehicles out front of your place like getting that gossip would you know help you navigate that situation so it doesn't blow up if you go into work and you smell bad all right, someone who pulls you aside and says, hey, you really need to do something about your hygiene. You really need to take a shower every morning. You need to wear deodorant. Or someone takes you aside and said, hey, your clothes are just inappropriate for the office. Or someone takes you aside and said, hey, I know you think that uh, you were saying interesting or funny or amusing things to your, your coworkers, but uh, several of them have taken very great offense and they went to the boss and complained about you. These are basic forms of gossip that, it can be absolutely life-saving for someone if if it's you know pointed out to them that they're unconsciously doing things that are aggravating, infuriating other people. I, I just categorization. You're talking about rebuke, not gossip. So in those cases, you're you're saying like the person necessitates rebuke, and uh, you like we were talking about uh, Musa or, or like you know telling people you're like you know what the problem with you is, and that's not gossip. That's rebuke. Some gossip would be me and you discussing someone else as opposed to directly confronting it. And, uh, you know, then you have, you know, within Jewish law, kind of like the laws of Lush and Hora. So if it's a matter to say like, well, I have this issue with my neighbor, but I'm scared that if I rebuke them, they might shoot me. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm telling my buddy Luke about it and he's listening to me. And if that falls into gossip, if like, you know, if there's no, benefit to it like a needs to know basis like i'm telling i'm giving gossiping about my neighbor because i'm telling luke like uh i'm thinking of rebuking my neighbor but i might end up uh, you know getting shot god forbid or something like that but i, mean, I don't see if you see what i'm saying like you're, that's not gossip that's rebuke uh i i disagree but uh you, you made your point let me just uh i put into i put into google is uh is gossip good and here's what comes up so Four benefits of gossiping that keep you stress-free. This is the the top uh, top answer in Google. Google gossiping helps build great 
bonds. So gossip is a form of connection. It also releases feel-good hormones like serotonin. We are social creatures. We are actually wired towards gossip. So gossip helps us understand who's trustworthy and who might help us survive. Oxytocin, the bonding hormone, is also released in the body during gossip. That's what helps build trust and a better bond. It generates empathy. So sharing experiences of hurt by another person with someone close can help lessen the difficult emotions, thereby reducing the burden of shame. Helps in problem solving if you're going through a tough situation or you see your friends in a tough situation and you can offer help or guidance or support. Uh, sharing struggles within a social or work setting with someone close to you, you might get a new perspective. It also keeps anxiety at bay, right? You've got things building up inside of you. You're bound to feel anxious and stressed and venting, right? Communicating what's going on will usually help uh, calm you down. I mean, if you're bitching all the time, it's a red flag. Uh, too much gossiping can lead to, you know, a group-like mentality where you're afraid to do anything individual. You can become overly critical. So definitely don't want to be known as the, you know, the biggest gossip at work. But uh, just looking through Google right now, is gossip good? Next result, NBC News. Psychologists say gossiping is a social skill. Right? A good gossiper is someone who people trust with information, someone who uses that information in a responsible way. BBC, why gossiping at work is good for you. While some gossip can be petty and unprofessional, other types of gossiping can be fun, normal, even healthy and productive. Next result, academic study, gossip drives social bonds and helps people to learn. Next academic study, spread the word, gossip could be good for you. Psycho positive psychology, what is positive gossip? Then the Atlantic, gossiping is good. Time magazine, why do people gossip? Here's what science says, gossip staves off loneliness and anxiety, facilitates bonding and closeness. Next result, gossiping is scientifically proven to be good for us. It's a form of vicarious learning. And yes, gossip is good for your mental health. So if you do it the right way, there's no need to feel guilty about it. So any thoughts on why all these different media and academic organizations are making the argument that uh, gossip is good for you, David? Yeah, I mean, I mean, because I spent so much time as an ultra-Orthodox Jew, like I hear gossip, and to me it's just like a sin. Like gossip, is that Rechilis or Lashonor? It's just a sin. Like, you know, just a natural aversion to you saying, like, well, of course, gossip's a sin. I don't sin. Um, and then, but uh, you know, with that differential, why in Orthodox Judaism, gossip is basically just clearly a sin that uh, requires to be avoided. Oh, it's a difficult sin. You know, the Talmud mentions that, you know, like Lushanora is one of the sins that basically everyone's guilty on. And, uh, but, I would differentiate from an Orthodox Jewish culture where you have a strong community and everybody comes together and kind of knows each other and uh, you're more connected to people. You go, you pray to with each other. Often, uh, even people you don't like, uh, you'll get into your close vicinity. Uh, you know, like if you, you know, made a kiddish or, you know, got married or had a kid or even like a Sabbath meal, the nature of the community, there might even be people you don't like that, that like get through and uh, are at your event and uh you know, so there's not more rules about gossip and is generally seen as a negative thing and even like straight up from jewish law is just a sin um in secular culture american culture is much more impersonal there is no like greater community that you're part of 
outside of you know, maybe some work situations or education as a youth. And it's hard to break the barrier. It's hard to meet people. It's hard to be part of the community. You know, it's like if you're Orthodox Jew, you go to synagogue, there's hundreds of people that are part of your community, whether you like them or not. If you're secular, probably only have like your family, a handful of people you work with, or if you're in an educational scenario. And then besides that, it's extremely difficult to meet people. It's extremely difficult to break the personal barrier. And so I think that's probably where the disconnect is uh, you know, within Orthodox Jewish uh, culture, where it's just like a sin. Like, uh, you know, how could you even possibly think that there's something good to gossip? It's a sin to, uh, you know, that'd be like, you know, saying there's benefits to like having an affair or something like that to secular culture where it's so impersonal and difficult to develop personal relations with people where something like gossip could be seen as a beneficial way to make more personal relationships. Well, one normal definition of an Orthodox Jew is someone who abides by the Shulchan Aruch, 16th century compendium of Jewish law, and the Shulchan Aruch doesn't even mention gossip. Like, gossip did not receive much halakhic consideration in Judaism until the 19th century when the Chafetz Chaim did something that was logically ludicrous. He took Agadita, like all these stories in the Jewish tradition, and he turned it into a halacha, which is no you know, sound basis for a halacha. And you know, other rabbis at the time thought it was absolutely ridiculous what he'd done, but it became a popular success with you know not very bright Orthodox Jews. But uh, as far as the the Jewish tradition, uh, gossip receives very little halakhic attention. It's not uh, it's not much of a theme in the the Gemara. Only handful of examples where you find in in the Gemara any you know even minor attempts to try to legislate against gossip. So this whole idea that Orthodox Judaism considers gossip a big sin. This is an invention of a ludicrous experiment in the 19th century by the Chafetz Chaim, just taking stories and turning them into a halakha, which is no sound or fundamental or a real basis for halakha. It's just one of those attention-seeking things that you know rabbis do. Like, how can I get attention? Like, how can I revolutionize the, the, the Jewish tradition? Ah, I'm going to do something completely new. I'm going to take stories and I'm going to turn them into laws. But anyone who knows anything about Jewish law realizes that in the Jewish tradition, prior to the ludicrous experiment of the Chafetz Chaim, uh, Lashon Hara, gossip received almost no halakhic attention. Well, I mean, you diminish the nature of the sages in the Chafetz Chaim because, like, uh, Jewish law, like the Shulchan Aruch is, you know, a book written by a man, Rav Yosef Karo, and the reality is that just like, you know, the Talmud, you study Talmud with Rashi, you study the you study the Shulchan Aruch with the Mishnah Borough written by the Chafetz Chaim. So, uh, I mean, you could say that about the Chafetz Chaim, but like relative to Orthodox Judaism, the Chafetz Chaim has been canonized and Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch has been encompassed. Everywhere I was in yeshiva, uh, Jewish law was always, except for some Hasidic circles, was universally studied with the Mishnah Borough. In most places, when you become a rabbi, it is based upon mastery of the Mishnah Borough written by the Chavetz Chaim. So, I mean, you you might be correct in the sense of, uh, I mean, even the Chavetz Chaim himself says that, although he goes to great lengths to, you know, to quote all the biblical verses and try to show that it's Jewish law. But, but uh, yeah, I would say that, uh, you know, that it has been codified and, you know, the Mishnah Borough is, basically the modern day Shulchan Aruch that uh, you know, Jewish law 
from even to modern Orthodox, they probably straight look at the Mishnah Bro to say, you know, what's what's the rule? And and they look at the Chavetz Chaim and what he says. That's the rule. Well, if if uh, gossip is such a big sin in Orthodox Judaism, how come it gets almost no attention in the Talmud? Gets almost no attention in you know the various rabbinic codes. It gets virtually no attention in Maimonides' Mishnah Torah. Right? It doesn't really get any attention till the Chavetz Chaim comes along about 3,000 years into Judaism. So the prior 3,000 years of Judaism, Judaism apparently did just fine without need to legislate against gossip in any significant or detailed way. Suddenly you have an explosion in the 19th century with the Hafez Chaim, but for 3,000 years of Judaism, it got virtually no attention. That could be true, but I think that's irrelevant for Orthodox Judaism because uh, you know we don't follow the Talmud, we follow our modern Orthodox rabbis, and since the Chafetz Chaim did it, I mean, the Chafetz Chaim is basically considered the saint of the pre-war generation and has been codified and, and basically, by definition, today, an Orthodox rabbi is someone who's mastered the Mishnah Boros. I mean, even if you're right that no one mentioned it beforehand, that uh, that uh, the Chafetz Chaim has been canonized as our saint, Jewish law has been codified, in his commentary on the Mishnah Borough and has largely been accepted universally among Orthodox Jews. So I mean, it's irrelevant whether whether uh, it, it was what it was beforehand, because we follow our rabbis of the current generation. Uh, it, it irrelevant that uh, basically someone invented, you know, a whole new way of uh, understanding Jewish law in, in the 19th century with very little precedent for the preceding 3000 years of Judaism. It seems to me that uh, that that's quite relevant. You suddenly had an explosion in the late 19th century uh, from from the Chafetz Chaim that virtually had no precedent. I mean, it was as radical in a sense as Reform Judaism. Yeah, but I was saying like uh, Orthodox Judaism to some extent is uh, you know Catholic in that sense, and the Chafetz Chaim was from the greatest sages of the generation, and he was accepted. And the vast majority of the sages accepted him, and uh, you know, so it's not our position to uh, you know, predate and ar- you know, you kind of like you don't get to argue with the Rambam, like your Orthodox Jew, you don't get to argue with the Chavetz Chaim, and uh, you know, from that perspective, like uh, you know, uh, well, I'm saying so you got your open Orthodox, like you got to rely on someone like Mark Shapiro. Mark Shapiro admitted he couldn't get a job in an Orthodox. Uh, uh, you know, even with his Harvard degree, he couldn't get a job in a Jewish day school. Not even Ooh. a single Jewish Orthodox. Oh day yeah, that's right. He did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, we're saying because you know Mark Shapiro, but he doesn't get to argue with the Chavetz. I mean, he does because uh, you know, like it's America. But uh, you know, in that sense, like uh, you know, like no, I, mean, I went to enough Orthodox schools, and like maybe I felt like you did at some point. But uh, you're know, saying like no, I mean, like being a rabbi today means mastering the Chavetz Chaim understanding even at your local young israel modern orthodox synagogue if you have a question in jewish law they look at the mishnah borough like the chavetz chaim that's considered law um that you know mark shapiro could write his books but uh you know mark, mark shapiro is a open orthodox rabbi and i mean that's fine but but uh, that's why i'm saying from orthodoxy like uh you know i lived in uh you know brooklyn and the chavetz chaim was our saint he was on our milk boxes Lush and horror things were on, uh, you know, basically uh, every wall, and there's not a single Orthodox yeshiva I studied in ten different Orthodox yeshivas. There's not a single Orthodox yeshiva I studied in that part of the curriculum did not include 
studying the Chafetz Chaim. So, I mean, you, you don't have to say like, well, you don't hold like the Chafetz Chaim, but I was just making the point, okay, we use the word Orthodox Judaism. He's like, okay, I can, you consider yourself an Orthodox Jew, but you don't hold like the, the Chafetz Chaim. Um, and, and you say, okay, well, the yeshivish community, we could play around with words, but uh, you're saying like certainly within a wide swath of the black hat community or, or some form of what you're going to call orthodoxy, uh, the Chafetz Chaim's our saint, our beacon of Jewish law, and he straight up says gossip is a sin. And uh, you, you know, I lived in those uh, communities, like, uh, and uh, you know, you know, I have the Mishnah. I'm sure you have, you don't have a Mishnah Borough on your shelf. You never studied the Mishnah Borough. I, I have. I've got it as, as as a virtual document. I don't don't have the physical document. I don't have many physical physical. Whoever books. recommended it to you wasn't kind of like straight up like these are the rules. It wasn't like well the Chafetz Chaim like you could disagree with them, but it was just like you're just like the Shulchan Aruch, the Mishnah Berurah is considered Jewish law, and generally if it says it, you should try to do it. Oh, everyone tries to instruct you <laughs> in traditional Jewish life. Everyone's an expert. Everyone's trying to tell you, yeah, this is the way it is. This is the, this is the law. But in Orthodox Jewish life, most people are ignorant. Like most people have no understanding of history. They have no understanding of, uh, you know, the, the Gomorrah or the ongoing rabbinic tradition. I mean, most people aren't very bright and aren't very learned, but uh, they, they, they often feel very free to tell you, you know, how you should understand or how you should practice, even if they don't know anything. So even plenty of rabbis don't know very much. Yeah, but so even at your local modern Orthodox synagogue, if there's a question of Jewish law, the rabbi is probably going to, of any text, even Chabad, most likely use the Mishnah Burl. Even like whoever you consider your rabbinic advisory you know, I don't know if you're going to call Mark Shapiro, but I would guess in four out of five of the modern Orthodox places, if you had some form of Jewish law question of anything from kosher to the holiday to praying to anything, the text they're going to go to is, in fact, the Chafetz Chaim, the Mishnah Burl. Yeah, that, that's true, particularly in uh, modern Orthodox or yeshivish circles, not so much in Hasidic Judaism. So your experience in Orthodox Judaism, is it primarily in the yeshivish crowd the Hasidic community, where is most of your experience? Mixed, I mean, because my learning experience was in the yeshivish crowd. My living experience was among Hasidim. So I learned in Litvish yeshivas. And uh, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you. I'm just saying, like, I spent three I years in yeshiva. And, like, like I would have been thrown out of yeshiva if I said what you said. Like, you do not get to argue with the Chafetz Chaim. And like, uh, you know, I didn't know who the Chafetz Chaim was before I went to Israel. And uh, like almost definitionally, like every you know, like Jewish law is the study of the Chafetz Chaim. I mean, it's obviously there's the Shulchan Aruch and there's the Mishnah Torah. But uh, like of the most recent authoritative text, um, it is the Mishnah Borough. Like there's more, you know, modern commentary. But Moshe Feinstein didn't make a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. He only made um, Shailas and Shuvas answers to questions. The Chavetz Chaim wrote uh, an authoritative commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, and generally, that you know, like within the yeshiva community, that's the Chavetz Chaim is considered Jewish law. And it's just like you don't get to argue with the Chavetz Chaim. He says that that's the law. You know, maybe you want to sin, in, but uh, you know. So that's why I mentioned because we're talking about gossip. That uh, in, in the Hasidic circles, gossip is not considered as bad, and a lot of people. Uh, you would say, no, I mean, the, I'm, I'm Hasidic. We don't follow the Chafetz Chaim. We follow 
you know, the Shulchan or Rav or, or various Hasidic people that would still say, you know, Lashon Hora is bad, but not to the extent that the Chafetz Chaim. But, you know, just because we're talking gossip, I spent three years in yeshiva and even, uh, you know, here in, uh, you know, my local modern Orthodox, uh, you know, community, you know, like, Chafetz Chaim, man, like, gossip's a sin. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I didn't mean to be, like, pushing on you, like, you have to follow the Chafetz Chaim, but I was making the, you know, direction. No, no, I, 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 in that community, like, you you say gossip, and I just think, like, Chafetz Chaim's sin. Yeah, no, it's, it's good that you said what you did. We're not disagreeing. We're just uh, emphasizing different different perspectives. And th th what this brings to mind is that one of the biggest misconceptions in Orthodox Jewish life is that uh, questions are welcomed, right? Certain questions are welcomed, all right? It, particularly if you're you're willing to, you know, simply accept the, the answers that you're given. But all sorts of questions are not welcome in Orthodox Jewish life. So I'm not sure if you got into the same sort of trouble I did initially laboring under the misconception that uh, questions are welcomed in Orthodox Jewish life. They're, they're welcomed by some rabbis in some circumstances, like there are some rabbis who really like to engage with a very broad range of questions and who even enjoy being challenged. But generally speaking, right, if you're not careful in the questions that you ask in Orthodox Jewish life, it's going to redound to hurt you. Any thoughts on that? Well, that, and questions are encouraged in the sense that, like, yeah, there's a lot of things you need to know, and but like in the sense of authority, in the saying you can't question the authority of the Chafetz Chaim in yeshiva circles. So you could question, like, oh, I have a question, like, can I say this or can I do this? Can you not? And then the person looks up in the Mishnah Borough and is like, oh, it says here you can't do it. And then like, well, you can't really like go beyond questioning it. He was like, well, are you an Orthodox Jew and you're going to follow the rule? Or you say, I don't care, I'm going to do what I want, even though you've heard the answer. Um, and then in yeshiva, there's theoretical. So you could question, like, I wonder why the Chafetz Chaim says it. Uh, but, you know, the authority structure is basically solid. So that's why I said, like, your points about, like, the Talmud uh, doesn't matter because we follow the rabbis of our generation. And, I mean, the orthodoxy is a tough word, but, but it's saying the orthodoxy assumes the acceptance of that authority structure and you're not allowed to question that authority structure. And, and so in that sense, like some questions are allowed, other questions aren't. And did you get into trouble asking inappropriate questions or did you did you realize what the score was fairly quickly? No, I figured that out right away. And I asked questions like theoretically. So I mean, as I said, like as long as you don't question authority, you could ask. I mean, like even your questions, like uh, like what doesn't say that in the Talmud or like, these things, uh, you could even be like argumentative, but uh, in that sense, like no nothing that you said would have necessarily like, you know, got you in trouble in yeshiva, except if you were like afterwards telling your classmates, like, let's lead a rebellion against the Chafetz Chaim. So, like, in, that, in, in that sense, like, yeah, if you try to be like, a, I mean, because then basically you're saying like, this is just stupid. Why do we have to follow these rules? And from the perspective um I mean, the orthodoxy is a tough word to put in that sense, but I, I, I even put like even from the modern orthodox, the orthodox perspective, the Chafetz Chaim saying it is basically as good as the Torah saying it. Yes, yes. And, and so like you were saying That's like, well, exactly you know, the Torah right. yes. says it, the Chafetz Chaim says it, uh, you know, like, well, you know, saying like, they're all, I mean, there, there is like the, the theory of Jewish law and making rulings, but from the lay point, 
um, you have to accept the Chafetz Chaim the same way you accept uh, the Talmud and the Torah. Yeah, it, so it, it extends essentially what is God's word to basically 3,000 years of the Jewish tradition is in effect, you know, particularly if you're a lay Jew, not particularly thoughtful or learned, the, you know, the whole thing, you know, up to the, to the you know, sermon from your, your rabbi, if he's in line with the Gedolei Torah, uh, you know, the great ones of Torah, you know, he is essentially, you know, passing on, transmitting the, the divine word. So the, the entire, you know, Jewish tradition is essentially, you know, linked in to, to God in the final analysis. We've talked about this in the past quite a bit, like in terms of like rabbi shopping and even like, you know, like, so, you know, you had your issue, like, you know, like running a porn site or something, you know, years back. To the, and so if it's something where you, you're saying, well, what rabbi gave you permission? And you say, well, well, I didn't ask. Um, it's different than to say, well, I asked my rabbi and my rabbi said no, and I'm doing it anyways. Or verse like it's a clear ruling of the community, and you're going against the rules. And then, you know, so if you're if you're in yeshiva, or depending on your status in the community, you have some leeway to go against the rabbis. You'd be like, well, well, I'm weak. I got to make a living. And uh, you know, maybe in your case, like uh, I, mean, I think you cover in your book, we talked about it, uh, like in that case where like eventually, um, you know, maybe they they like clamp down on you and the rabbi you know, like Asha Tor or whatever, God forbid, like uh, that same rabbi who uh, you know, took your tefillin away or something like that. It's like, these are the rules. You're not following it. You're out. And, uh, to, you know, to some extent, um, you could rabbi shop. You could be a bad Jew. You could have status in the Jewish community. Be like, well, I'm weak. I know that I'm not supposed to do this, um, but I do it anyways. And then there's like the heresy where you start saying, well, I think the rabbis are wrong. You know, that, that uh, you're arguing with the rabbi's ruling and to that level, like, uh, yeah, I mean, you, questions are good, but questioning authority is not good. Now, uh, here's, here's another problem that, that I had in Jewish life. I, I'd sometimes meet, you know, charismatic, fascinating rabbis and I'd want to become a devoted follower. But then there would be essentially all sorts of requirements. <laughs> if you if you want to stay connected to a great rabbi, you have to you know act and speak in in alignment with his his you know perspective his his views his his you know his practice where he's holding so did did you at times try to like follow his rulings because there is that like law and judgment type sense and and you know so you're putting it in a less formal way if you you because it it may even be harder for your non-orthodox jewish friends even to fathom but when you put it you would to phrase it like you have to follow his rulings yeah, if you want to be a Talmud, if you want to be a devotee of a, of a rabbi, you you need to follow his rulings. So, did you get into? I don't know some mixed feelings. I'm sure you've encountered rabbis that you wanted to be a devoted follower to, but then that came with substantial requirements in how you lived your life. How did you square those things? I played the game of like rabbi shopping. I did my best, and I was weak, and then like I held my breath on like you know, Friday nights or Sabbath and lined up to shake the rabbi's hand, you know, like praying that the rabbi's not, <laughs> God forbid, you know, get like yell at me, like, you're a bad Jew. You know, you know, sound like, I mean, it's basically like in synagogue, like, yeah, I think I'd go to my local synagogue and, you know, like maybe, you know, like my rabbi's been informed about like all the bad stuff I've been doing, but like, you know, 
I would probably Friday night like line up and shake the rabbi's hand and chances are the rabbi is not going to publicly rebuke me in front of everybody and uh and you know that'll be it it was like okay like I'm weak I could be doing better I should be doing better I accept um you know we talked about the hand the handshaking ceremonies so you go to your local orthodox synagogue and you're either going to make after the services everyone's going to line up and shake the rabbi's hand and you're either going to make a public statement by not lining up and shaking the rabbi's hand or you're going to line up with everybody else and shake the rabbi's hand which is some sort of like public acknowledgement of accepting the rabbi's authority and it's very unlikely the rabbi is going to publicly chastise you it's unlikely that the rabbi is going to like even tell tell his congregants like to to avoid you and just like okay like you're a weak jew and we're all weak and and like you know we should be doing better but uh and i don't know if you do that like uh, you know typically like you know you you uh, you know, if you're the type guy that you stand there like, oh my God, like, I can't believe all these people are lining up to shake the rabbi's hand, or is it like typically like, no, you line up and you shake the I rabbi's hand. I have not like, been someone who lined up to shake the rabbi's hand. I have not. I have chosen not to be a devotee of any particular, you know, rabbi. I keep, you know, I keep some moderate amount of uh, distance. How about you? Did you, you, you obviously did line up for a time. I almost always would, uh, shake the rabbi's hand, you know, like, uh, um, I mean, the sense, like, it, it, like, you know, so if I, you know, if I, I came out to, to any synagogue, that's, you know, partly, okay, so like, um, you know, so like, why didn't I go to synagogue? Because, you know, like, I'm going to have that issue because, uh, you know, basically even my you know, local young Israel, everyone's going to line up and shake the rabbi's hand and either I'm going to line up and shake the rabbi's hand and the implications of what that means, or I'm going to publicly be from like the handful of people that don't line up and shake the rabbi's hand and the implications of, of that. So I mean, if you're going to synagogue, if you're going to these places and you're publicly, and that's probably like part of the, the distance why I have a hard time bringing myself to go to synagogue. Cause it's, it's that, you know, it's, it's that moment really where everyone lines up and shakes the rabbi's hand and not necessarily like anything on the rabbi. I mean, he might be a nice, good guy, but uh, you know, the symbolically, you know, what that means. Am, am I going to fall in line, like like uh, the, everyone else, and line up and shake the rabbi's hand, or am I going to publicly like make the statement? I came to synagogue, and I was from like the only people who didn't line up to shake the rabbi's hand, or am I just not going to go? Yeah. Now, what's your experience with being publicly chastised by rabbis? Um. It's almost never happened. It happened to me like once uh, in like a Hasidic camp and the rabbi actually apologized because uh, it, it was, um, I mean, very rarely do people publicly chastise you. It's, a, you know, embarrassing someone in public is a big uh, a sin. So usually they'll do it in private and then, you know, you could try to like avoid rabbis. You could see the chastisement coming. And uh, I mean, so LA, you, you have, the uh you probably have the privilege where you there you could be part of the community you could go to a minion where there's not a like a you know like a this big like uh subservient to rabbi culture or like i don't know like i mean i've never pressed you too much on your connections or your friends but uh you know like maybe um like your local minion doesn't have that like everyone lines up and shakes the rabbi ceremony uh and, and that you've found a community where you don't have to uh you know either 
you know, go through that or, or, or publicly, uh, you know, not doing that. So in New York, you know, there were so many synagogues or you get that you could get the hint, you could get the feel where you're going to be chastised. Like, that, that, I mean, it's unlikely. I mean, you're doing something so bad. If you're dangerous to the community, I mean, if you're just, a, you know, falling short in your Judaism, but you're not endangering the community, it's very unlikely like the rabbis are going to make an intervention uh, against you. But if you're frequently a uh, congregation or community and you're outside of the community standards, um, you, you could usually feel the chastisement is coming and then you know, duck out before the chastisement. But, you know, I read in your book, you've talked about, you know, the, the, the chastisement. And I even mentioned like, like ironically, the name slipping me that, uh, that, that rabbi uh, who uh, you, God forbid, uh, kicked you out, uh, started out here in Michigan. I remember when I was at University of Michigan, he came and preached there. I forget the young Israel rabbi that went on to be the head of like uh, the Orthodox the Union. Yeah, Orthodox What's Union rabbi. rabbi. Rabbi Weil. Yeah, rabbi Weil or something like that. And I don't know if he made a public declaration or if he called you in to rebuke you or if you could have got the hint, if you had gotten the hint a little bit early and just stopped showing up that you could have avoided uh you know the chastisement and you know so like in israel a few times in new york i had rabbis you know call me in and you know chastise me he's basically like you are not cutting slack like you have to shape up like you know minimally like this this and this immediately you know it'd be like a list of like god forbid you like a list of like you know 10 things but like immediately starting instantly like you have to change this this and this and like over the next period of time a list of things and like yeah rabbis of the community they could be like that but uh they're not gonna like you know hit you at your house or something like that so i mean it's usually when you're actively in a community and you're always there and and it would be the rabbi would be some sort of rep representative of community standards and very rarely you know usually the rabbi has like a gabai and uh you know in israel even like i i remember the story of uh it was positive this uh African convert, uh, Rabbi Gemedza from Swaziland, the, the prince's son who, who went to Oxford and he said he was like driving down the street and uh, one of the Rabbi Vadi Yosef's like, you know, pulled over in like a, a car and he was like, the rabbi wants to see you. He was like, which rabbi? Like, you know, like Rabbi, Rabbi Vadi Yosef. He's like, when? He's like, now, get in. And like, and, and he got in his car and it was positive. He wanted to, uh, you know, say, encourage him and, you know, being a convert and it was positive. Um, but, uh, you know, when I was in Israel or um, New York, there were a lot of rabbis who called me and, and it was positive because I was a Balchuva and they wanted to encourage me. And I, I assume like as a convert in Los Angeles, there's probably a lot of rabbis that have at least over periods of time that have wanted to speak to you. And uh, maybe it's been positive and, you know, some that a representative of the rabbi be like oh you know like come speak to the rabbi or you know come to this event and usually it's positive um although occasionally like i mean if you're involved in usually you know you're involved in questionable behavior so like if you're going to be called by the rabbi and chastised like it's almost always like something you know is coming yeah yeah and so i've been i've had rabbi seek me out because they wanted connections to uh people in, in hollywood or in the entertainment uh, media industries so that's that's occurred. Um, other times, rabbis have enjoyed my my blog, wanted to to meet me, or just interact with me, you know, via email or social media. And then 
probably half a dozen occasions, you know, rabbis have, you know, lambasted me, but not named me from, from the, the bima, from the pulpit, because I would be, you know, criticizing this or that that's going on in the Orthodox Jewish community. And so they would, you know, they would essentially blast me from their pulpit as I would then blast them from my pulpit of the, of the blog. So that, that's kind of an interesting experience when you're sitting in the pew and, and, you know, the rabbi up there on the beaver is kind of going after you. And, you know, sometimes the rabbis were right and I was wrong. So obviously I'm not uh, you know, this uh, great moral figure. Well, I mean, I mean, God forbid in your book, you mentioned the time at Asia Torah where the rabbi calls you into his office and he's got like a whole file yeah. and like confiscated your tefillin or something. I don't know if that's the only time that happened. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had several meetings with the rabbis like that, but often it would just be, I would break news, for example, about, you know, some rabbi who was a sexual predator and essentially his deeds had been covered up by the, the local Orthodox Jewish community. And so I would go after the community for, you know, just allowing this guy to be to be a predator for, for decades. They would just kind of cover it up and move him on. And then when I would expose it, then they would, you know, denounce me for exposing it and it kind of would force their hand that uh, then, you know, the rabbi would have to resign and the rabbinic organizations would say that, uh, oh, we have a zero tolerance policy for you know, sexual predatory behavior, but it's it's a lie. I mean, they just covered up and let this guy move around the community for, for decades. So it it got quite uh, complicated and quite heated at times. Yeah, I mean, when you were talking about your rules and we disagreed on that point about like eventually... I forget the word you use, like being double crossed or, or something that eventually like all people will double cross you or, or betray you. Everyone will betray, betray you. Betray you. And I said, I didn't have that experience because I considered betrayal about something that was actually agreed upon. But if you, but if you considered somebody, you know, I, I didn't use the word gossip then, but, but, uh, you know, if you use the word gossip, but meaning, you know, talking trash about you behind your back, bad mouthing you behind your back, back. And it's like, well, yeah, almost everyone I know at some point has bad mouthed me behind my back. And I see like, uh, you like high T and Halsey been going at me in Twitter for months now. And, uh, you know, just like messages and, and, and in the sense like, okay, like almost any Orthodox rabbi in a public comment would bash me or trash talk me. They're probably like you also, like in certain aspects, like a rabbi might say good things about you, but in terms of like, you know, being like authoritative, or like a good role model for what it means to be a Jew, if it was called upon, I, I would assume like almost any rabbi, including my own rabbis, would probably like badmouth me if they had to defend Judaism or or in terms of like the you know the education of children, teaching kids, and they're they're saying like that's not our path, and you know saying like look this dude's like doing Hinduism or, or you know various things or or you know just like that's not our path. And that they would be more than happy to publicly badmouth me. But at the same time, like say, you know, a lot of rabbis are very careful in their speech and would probably defend me. It's like, like, and it might, you know, that's what oh, he's a half Jew. He's a Bolchuva. He's a convert. He's trying his best. Might sing my, uh, your praises and, you know, the good qualities or like the charity I've done. However, they would say like, yeah, you're not a model for like how they're educating their children in that sense so i mean that i mean when when you when you said betrayal did you mean gossip and and 
bad mouthing as the most common form of betrayal or you're saying you're getting betrayed in all sorts of ways well people will always disappoint you because people are human and so we will also tend to you know overestimate our our standing with other people and so you said betrayal not disappointment well disappointment intense disappointment is often experienced as betrayal betrayal meaning we betrayal is a hyperbolic term and I, i don't believe that it's an accurate term ever betrayal simply means that other people have different priorities than what we expected but people's lived experience is you know you will on a regular basis feel betrayed let down so you may have done worked really hard for a boss and then suddenly they let you go and and you feel whoa you know i could have coasted on this job i, I didn't have to work so hard and, and i worked hard and, and now they're letting me go i mean that's outrageous or you're you know, you're you're dating someone and you're making plans to get married, but you don't realize that, you know, the other party is making plans to, to break up with you. And so you're, you know, building towards a future that is not there and it's going to feel like a betrayal. Or uh, a good friend says, you know, hey, I can't, I can't be friends with you anymore because, you know, you said or did these things publicly and to, you know, maintain my standing in the community after I have to cut you off and distance myself from you. And that's going to feel like uh, feel like a betrayal. So betrayal is a hyperbolic term that we use when other people's priorities are not what we expected. Well, I put it. I mean, if we take, make it personal, and say, like, no, I don't. I don't think you betrayed me. You, you may it's like disappoint me. Okay, like in the sense, like okay, like we're streaming, and I mean, like relatively, you were nice to me, and you started me in it. But but in the hopes, like I assume we both had much bigger hopes than we've achieved. And, uh, you know, we've been working with each other off and on for a period of time. And even, you know, for a period where we started off, your your numbers were much bigger. And it was possible that uh, the success could have been substantially higher. And, you know, presumably we were both disappointed. You know, like the fame and the money, uh, you know, did not come. We're both on much smaller numbers than uh, the period of a few years ago. And then even a level that, you know, we probably both badmouthed each other uh on streams, maybe not purposely, but, uh, you, you know, certainly in terms of like expressing disappointment or even with, uh, your detractors or, or trolls in the chat that will get, you know, do, do, like, tell me how you really feel about Luke Ford and, you know, be like, you know, the problem with Luke Ford mm-hmm. and like, and in, in, in that sense where a person could be drawn to gossip and bad mouthing, but I still wouldn't put that at the level of, uh, betrayal but i mean it gets back to the point of gossip and saying like oh because that mean like and like i'm used to doing it like it's kind of like jewish stick where you're basically like you know like anytime someone mentions luke ford i could just say like these benevolent awesome things like oh luke force mama shitsadik you know like he's a great guy and try to like boost you up and uh you know like you talk like you know like get a woman out of your league like duvid is your friend like i would lie for you and pretend like you're a much better person than you actually are in order to help you, um, you know, get a chance in uh, Parnassa or, or a woman or in certain manners, or, or maybe be like, Don, I got to be honest here. Like, I like Luke Ford. He's a nice guy, but like, uh, you, know, you know, like I know him, he's got all these problems and I'm going to inform you about them. And uh, I mean, so that's where you have the actual rules of the Kofitzkeim and the complications. But uh, I mean, I think we talked about that in the past also, where there's like camaraderie in Judaism 
where you know, like an entourage where, where you know we could work together and uh, like a fake it till you make it and I'm going to treat you like the person you're faking trying to be than the person you actually are and you know you might treat me like the person I'm faking trying to be as as opposed to the person I actually am and uh, and then usually that uh, backfires at some point and like I mean reality hits um, but you know this level of uh, you know then like bad mouthing and uh, and then at what point does it pay to air out your dirty laundry and and then it get back to the positive side of secular culture because like if we go to synagogue with each other and we you know have it out and start uh, you know bashing each other we're still gonna have to see each other all the time we're still part of the same community as opposed to like secular culture it makes people interested like you know it's like who is this Luke Ford guy why are you telling me all this stuff about him and uh, and then you know then you're just like well I want to see I want to make my own judgment for yourself and you form like some sort of uh, personal relationship so if I'm gossiping even if it's a negative way it could cause some sort of emotional bind to the person I'm talking about where they're going to uh, and it even happened with like John Wolf where uh, you know like I'm streaming with his uh, former streaming partner and now they're fighting and uh, you know it's drama and people are interested in the drama and uh, people that were friends are bashing each other and we could go over um, it may may not be worth it but uh, you know just the streaming history you know like uh, Brundle, Kyle, uh, people you work together, KMG. KMG you probably positive like that I've never once heard you badmouth KMG you might just say practically why it didn't work out but like relatively it was probably a successful relationship so anytime you mention KMG largely you just say positive things. Yeah yeah I mean and, and this is very intense there's kind of a sense that you're in the in the trenches together like you're you're at, at war so if you're in the trenches and you know you're taking a lot of fire as you do if you speak out on any you know hot button issue publicly it's it's explosive all right you know the the dynamics of live streaming on controversial issues can drive people apart but it can also produce a feeling of, of solidarity but i know there are a lot of people who'd like to come on this stream who i don't want on the stream because i'm i'm concerned that it won't be good for them and i'm concerned that it'll just unnecessarily complicate my life so i don't know how how choosy have you been about the type of people you bring onto a live stream? I'm relatively pretty choosy. I don't stream that much and I try to keep it topical in certain like in terms of service or, or um, but I don't think anyone I've streamed with, I would say betrayed me even in terms of, uh, you know, the negative interactions I I've had that, uh, um, you know, even like Brundle or something like that, that, uh, you know, it's like, okay, like, you know, God forbid, like you got a strike. I remember at that point, like things were going good. And then all of a sudden, like you got a strike, you were making money, you were getting big views and, uh, your know, terms of service started getting, uh, more intense and you'd be more careful and, uh, you put your, your channel or you know, if you had hopes of it being a Parnassa at risk. And then you're just topical. They're just like, it's my show, my channel. I want to talk about what I want to talk about. And you could come on, like, if you're interested in talking about what I want to talk about. I mean, do you think anyone, would you consider anyone betraying you? I mean, even consider like, okay, like Brundle and Godward. And I was on streams where we were bashing you. Like, you know, God forbid, I mean, to some extent where like, I remember, you know, like, like you know, you were, you disappointed Godward 
and Brundle, and they had streams where they bashed you. But I don't know if they, like, to some extent, but I don't know if they betrayed you. Like, they were highly disappointed. They felt that uh, their expectations weren't met, and uh, and they felt that uh, what they wanted out of the relationship wasn't happening due to what they saw as personal defects in you. And they were publicly announcing you know that and then going through their personal defects at least a few times even if uh, your relationships but i don't even know if i would consider that betrayal and certainly they did that to uh you know me also but i wouldn't consider that betrayal right so when i think about things rationally and you know falling out with various people that i, I stream with I, I don't consider anything betrayal when i think about them rationally but when i'm caught up in the emotions of the moment then yeah certainly you know things things similar to, to what you mentioned can really sting and they can feel you know like uh, betrayal in, in the moment but then when when i get some perspective it's like oh they just you know they have different priorities they're different people you know they experience things a different way and so yeah they're going to have you know different different perspectives than i will your expectations i don't know if you had any comment on the gossip like you know like from the academic level a positive aspect of breaking the impersonal divide because like and that's i was consuming because we got into arguing about the covet's Chaim, but i was saying like in the orthodox jewish world the impersonal divide is sometimes like not even there to very thin and just saying like to to the certain extent like you, you're like the guy who hates you at synagogue might still show up to your simcha uh like you, you're gonna see him all the time and uh you know, you might have your friends in synagogue and then your frenemies in synagogue. And to some extent, your frenemies uh, might know just as much about you as your friends. And so that personal divide doesn't exist. And, and so the laws of Lush and Hora are more applicable as opposed to the larger world where, where it's, it's very impersonal. It's hard to, uh, you know, uh, um, break divides, break the social barrier, form personal relationships. And gossip could be extremely valuable like in anything like how are you going to meet somebody and just like you know like well give me something and uh, you know so gossip would be that information that uh breaks the divide even if it's negative then you have some sort of in to uh you're forming deeper relations with people yeah on a practical basis orthodox jews gossip just as much as anyone else and orthodox rabbis you know gossip just as much as plumbers only they talk about it you know that we're talking shop or i need to know for the good of the community but uh, gossip is endemic in orthodox jewish life and if you've never had much experience in orthodox jewish life it's just incredibly intense in-group identity it's so intense that for many orthodox jews anything that happens outside of orthodox judaism aside from earning a living is you know essentially pointless so it's worse i'm saying like you could assume that even if you have someone you don't like in the community that they probably know everything about you, that everything the community knows about yes. you, and that even if you have a friend, that your friend probably has an acquaintance who knows your 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 friend of me, and the information. So I mean, like, I mean, there's the laws of gossip, but I'm saying the Orthodox Jewish community, like, it's much worse. Gossip is much worse, and even the people you dislike, like, tend to know everything about you. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh... It's it's life with community means that you know people know your story, they know your foibles, they know your failures, they know your humiliations, and uh, 
that's that's just part of you know living in an extended family and not everyone's cut out for it it can be very intense and very challenging but i would not want to live any other way okay i'm going to start to uh, wrap things up for tonight any final words david well you got, did, did you have a like i was saying in the secular world if you agree that it's much more distance like like really like i know almost nothing about anybody and like 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 compared to orthodox judaism it, like you know you look on facebook or do research but it's extremely difficult to like break that personal barrier as opposed to orthodox judaism you just like ask someone in shul and next thing you know you have like all, all the dl uh, you know the the breakdown of, of the events like the secular community it's much more difficult or like at work and, and gossip we've talked about that in the past we could wrap up um but like gossip is a currency even orthodox judaism but anywhere uh you know gossip is a little bit of a currency uh you know especially making friends or, or the dating realm um you know if you're interested in a woman or something like knowing some sort of personal information gossip could definitely help break that barrier so you know, it's an important topic so i appreciate having me on happy shabuos tomorrow night uh and uh you know so be blessed and have a happy holiday okay thanks david uh good to see you good to talk to you and uh take care everyone bye bye